call an audible here. Uh, we're a small group today on this holiday weekend. And so I want to just, um, Steph and Jason, we're all set to go and lead kids, but I want to just include the kids in today. If you have a little, kind of five and below, Annika's in the, in the littles room, and, and you can drop off, or you can chill with us. But I'm just going to invite the kids to just be a part of today as we just spend a, a few minutes in God's Word. And um, maybe this could become a talking point for a dinner conversation this week with kids later. Uh, if you have your bulletin, you can uh, take a few notes as we go. But... Uh, this has been an interesting series because um, I grew up believing that heaven was somewhere you go when you die. Uh, and yet what I'm learning more and more is that heaven is a present reality and eternity has already begun. And so I think that's worth a deep dive. Now, let me just say this. Uh, a couple years ago, Laurel and I had this really fun experience where uh, in a, a, a kind of we knew him back when moment. And the moment was... Uh, uh, I say this guy, he was 26 years old. His name is Adam Morrow. Uh, we were friends with his family. And when he came to Austin, he was playing for a four-time Grammy Award-winning artist. If you were fans of the Civil War, uh, who, uh, they broke up. But John Paul White was the guy of the duo who's won four Grammys. Well, here's Adam Morrow playing lead guitar for John Paul White. And they came to Antone's and he said, Dave, I'm going to be in town could we meet up? So we got dinner together and then we got to go to their show. The thing that makes the story so fun is that like, I don't know, 13, 14 years early, when he was like an 11-year-old kid, he wanted to play guitar. And he came, we were living in Tuscaloosa and Laurel was teaching guitar lessons and said, will you teach me how to play guitar? And she talked to him about his ambition, his aspiration. He says, I want to be as good as Devin. Well, Devin was another sixth grader in our youth group. Devin came from musical parents. Devin was naturally gifted at everything, and so he really applied himself to very little. That's the curse of being naturally gifted, is that you don't have to necessarily work on things. Well, Devin not only never got any better, he quit playing altogether. Adam wanted to get not only as good as Devin, but he kept playing and he kept practicing. Years later, and so Laurel was the one who taught him his first chords, taught him his first bar chords, and now here he is playing for a four-time Grammy Award winner. And so how fun is it to see, oh, I knew him back when, when he couldn't even have a, figure out a consistent strumming pattern, right? So proud parent moment, you know, and we're still friends with their parents and whatnot. Why I say that story, it's not that she's trying to take credit for being able to play him. John Paul White has come to him and said, Adam, I want you to be my lead guitarist, but could you surround me with the whole outfit? So when he surrounds him with a band, it's Adam's band called Belladere playing for John Paul White. That's the band. I think it's a beautiful story of this coming of age. And the reason I tell the story is the kingdom of God often looks really subtle like seeds being planted that oftentimes we never get to experience the shade of the tree that we started years ago. We have this picture that Christ paints of, of the kingdom of heaven being like yeast that works its way through the whole batch of dough to cause it to rise, or like a whole field of wheat that's also filled with weeds that God doesn't want eliminated. There is this picture of heaven on earth that we want to be grandiose, and Christ is saying, no, 
It's actually subversive and subtle. It's hard to sometimes notice, and it's hard to actually see the real manifestation of it until years later. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, when we talk about receiving the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of heaven, it's super important for us to understand that's not simply where I go when I die or I get to go to heaven now that I'm done. No, what we're talking about is when we enter into the kingdom of heaven here on earth, what we're saying is I'm committing my allegiance under your rule and reign and I am and willingly signing up to be a participant in your salvation on earth, not just in me, but through me. That's the picture of heaven at work on earth. So when we are participating in God's kingdom of heaven on earth is what we call discipleship. Discipleship has lots of different connotations, lots of different meanings. I would simply like to talk about discipleship as our participation in the, God's kingdom. Now, when we talk about discipleship, immediately it's oftentimes we think about the cost of discipleship because somehow we need to consider the cost. Um, and so it, it stirs up images when you're a disciple that, that there's somehow these images of being a spiritual hero for those who have somehow heeded the call and become sort of this spiritual ninja, this elite kind of Christian, the, the few, the proud, the disciples, right? I mean, that's that's kind of how it starts to feel. And what I would like to suggest to you, and we're going to look at a passage that kind of unpacks this, is that discipleship is actually the normal Christian life as Christ intended it. What we've made into Christianity is, yes, I believe that too. I'll follow my way to church. And I have this sort of static belief system, but we're invited into so much more. So let me just start by giving you a definition, a working definition. Now, this is my definition of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and, and I would simply say a disciple is one who daily yields to Christ, who practices a living faith and is capable of instilling it in those closest. So let me just kind of break that down, what that looks like. So as we talk, and if you've been around me and Mission Hills for any length of time, you understand a disciple, again, is someone who daily yields. And so we talk about that as renewal. The, the rhythm of renewal is a growing sensitivity to God's presence so that I turn to and I turn from. But there's this sensitivity in our heart that when God invites us, maybe to repent or maybe it's to help, to respond, we are sensitive to God's leading. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we need to become more in tune with, but it only happens daily. Secondly, it's someone who practices in a living faith, and that's why we, we ascribe to these sort of talk about practice is the new deep. These are our rhythms that we want to have tangible expressions. And the reason I, I emphasize that so much is because most churches get built on programs. So we got to have a good children's program. We got to have a good youth program. And then we got to have a good outreach program. We have a good missions program and a good small group program. And those things aren't bad. But what I would contend is programs don't change lives. Practice, practices do. There's just effort involved. And so what I wanted to do was kind of give us a spiritual regimen to consider as we live out both faith and in community. And then the third part is, once we learn how to practice it, we become capable of instilling it in someone else. 
And it's not just sharing, oh, this is what I believe, so you should believe this too. No, this is what I believe, and, and it has shaped my life, so I'm able to impart it to those closest to us. A reproducible faith, if you will. So discipleship is the cost of following. Now, here's what I would say is inevitably we will follow something. We will give our lives to something, whether it be career, whether it be family, whether it be our recovery, whether it be our ambition. We will give ourselves wholeheartedly to something and we will all create a legacy. My question is, is, is that legacy a static one or is that a living legacy? If we exist as the kind of the center of our own lives, there's nothing, and it, it becomes sort of enslaving to us. And so what I'm suggesting is, is we give our lives to something that is eternal, that transcends our time on earth. And so that's the kind of followership I'm encouraging. And so discipleship is the cost of following that begins to sow seeds into eternity. Like any value proposition, we have to consider, though, the cost. Compare the cost of discipleship with the benefit. There's a value proposition. If there's a cost of discipleship, then what's, what's the value proposition that's going on? And so you have to add up what you gain, not just what you lose. And it's like the man in the parable that Jesus told, where he comes along in Matthew 13, and he says these words, he, in two sentences, or about four sentences, it's two quick lines, uh, he tells two parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had, and he bought that field. At face value, this is a little curious to me. I'm not sure what it means. Then he goes on, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. See, what I would say is there are lots of short-term gains that we can enjoy. Pleasure, comfort, prosperity. However, we find these things not only over time don't necessarily satisfy, they can actually become weaknesses and they can actually consume us. God's kingdom is immeasurably valuable, not just when we die, but here and now. And these two parables teach us essentially the same thing, that the kingdom of God is of such great value, we should be willing to give up everything in order to gain it. Pretty simple teaching of Jesus, but he's trying to paint a picture of heaven here and now, not there and then. And he's like, you think it's good when you die. You can actually get a, 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 whet your appetite for what it is like here and now. Now, let me just say, as I was kind of studying this, what I learned is this. There's certain Jewish scholars, Hebrew, or Hebrew scholars, Roman scholars, uh, and Greek scholars that actually wrote about this as, as it relates to Jesus's parable. Because when I read this, I go, that sounds like a really odd thing to say, to go any any found this treasure, he buried it, and then sold everything he had to go buy this field. Except that, think about the times. 
Josephus, one of the most renowned uh, Roman uh, historians, wrote about that there were instances where people who, after they're going to be invaded and occupied, that they were going to become a conquered nation. You don't have safety deposit boxes. You have nothing electronic in the way of commerce. You have no home vaults or wait. What do you do with your most valuable worldly possessions? You bury it like a hidden chest. And you probably create a map. And so what they had instances of is people taking their belongings and burying it in fields. And maybe when the coast is clear, years later, a generation later, you go and dig up what you buried because you didn't want it to become the plunder of the conquering nation. So Jesus is speaking in real terms, not some fairy tale imagination. He's identifying with the people of what do you do with what's most valuable? How do you protect your greatest earthly treasure? And so he's painting a picture for here's people who discovered a, 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 a really valuable treasure in a hidden field. And they thought it was worth everything, selling all that they had just to buy that field. That's the picture of the cost or the benefit analysis of what Jesus is saying about heaven here and now. We have this beautiful inheritance that we don't have to wait till someone dies to enjoy. We can actually live into that heavenly inheritance here and now. That's the invitation for what it means to be a disciple. Not to just stick your hand and say, yeah, I believe that too. And it just becomes this passive following. It's no, I get to live into this new way of life according to God's salvation. So uh, disciples aren't necessarily making special sacrifices for God. They're simply people who have realized that there's a treasure in a field that's worth more than they could ever own. That's the cost of discipleship. Oh my gosh, there's something more. Whatever your greatest earthly aspiration is, I'm saying there's something more. Whatever monetary level you want to achieve, whatever career advancement you want to earn, whatever, whatever marital status you want to ascribe to, whatever family dynamic you want to create, there's something immeasurably more. That's the picture. And he whets our appetite in these instances where we get to bring a little more light to a dark world. We get to bring a little bit of healing to a broken world. We get to participate with heaven on earth. That's the invitation to follow with our whole lives. I want to give you an example of this. Uh, years ago, when we were living in Tuscaloosa, um, in fact, when we first moved there, we moved in with a family who had children that were coming into the youth group. And so we, as a young married couple and our cat, moved in with this family. So you know you got close when you're allowed to stay with strangers and your pet. And so we moved into this house. Um, and so we got to know this family quite well. They became our, kind of our closest friends in Tuscaloosa. Well, he had an interesting story. He grew up in a broken family in Texas, and when it was time to go to college at the University of Texas, our friend Mike was, he called his dad, his, his dad who was not living at home, his dad who was divorced from his mom and said, Dad, I got into Texas. I was just wondering if, if, there, if you were wanting to participate and help pay for it. And he says, no way, you're on your own, kid. And he goes, fine. And no, if you knew Mike, he's just... He's, it's kind of guy who's never had a bad day and he's not going to be daunted and he's, he, he hears no, he's going to figure out a way, but he's never, never, never going to complain. So he never called back. Years later, 
His, his dad literally said, I kept waiting for him to call back a second time, but he never called back. So he pays for his college education all on his own. And he moves back and, and he, he's, he's living in West Virginia. He's wearing boots and jeans, driving a pickup truck and going up oil rigs. And he's, he's, he's figuring out the oil business. Well, you can see where this story goes. One night in a, in a bar, he meets Dee. And if you knew Dee, you wouldn't expect her to be. You know, he's, he's hustling the pool table. He's smoking cigarettes and he's having a drink. And he meets Dee, who's none of that. Well, one thing led to another. Marriage led to a family. And a family led to the start of a company. A company that he grew for the better part of 10 years called River Gas Company. And in 2000, he sold it for a pretty penny to Phillips Petroleum, a company he started from scratch. And I remember talking to him about the sale of it because um, um, he was describing some different dynamics. After he sold it, he started traveling around to different seminars and finding counsel from wealthy people. He was going to investment retreats in philanthropy because he wanted to figure out what to do with his wealth. And, his, and to his partner's horror, he was thinking, I've got to tithe 10% of the sale of my company. And they're like, what on earth are you talking about? Well, he started figuring out how to be a wise investor and, and, and giver. And, he start, and I said, Mike, what are you going to do now? He says, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I know this. I've just got to figure out how to keep using my gift. And his gift was the gift of giving. But to have the gift of giving, you usually also have the gift of being able to generate revenue. And so he was trying to figure out what now, what next. And so that became the process. What was interesting is to see the transformation because all along the way, even though he was working crazy hours, and he was an amazing dad, totally present, totally invested, but he served in so many, you know where his favorite, I mean, he was a great board member. He was a great lead usher. You know what his favorite ministry was? The parking lot. And if you're a parking lot greeter in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, it can be one of the most muggy, humid, thunderstorm, like hot as Haiti jobs. And Mike was always out there running around. In fact, one time he said, I was running around to greet someone and next door to the church was a Shoney's, like a Denny's. And he ran up to someone, it was in the rain, he ran up and he starts greeting them and he's trying to walk them into church and they're trying to go into Shoney's. And he's like, oh, my bad, I'm sorry. But he had that kind of energy. And all these years, he was being transformed into the image of God. From something that he never got growing up to becoming the likeness of Christ so that he could invest in kingdom effort. Now he sits on the board of World Vision, oh, excuse me, World Hope International, doing some remarkable work. Uh, he's done some other things, but it's, it's basically 75% uh, philanthropy. But along the way, he started another um, low-level venture capitalist company because he wanted to give young business guys uh, and gals a, a start. I remember talking to him after a couple years of doing this, and one of the first people he invested in, he was, he was frustrated with. And I said, well, what is it? They had started this hardwood flooring business, and they liked the idea of having their own company. And so he was 
frustrated with him. And, you know, it was another night after church where we're shooting pool in his family room. And he's just kind of opening up and thinking out loud, which I love for him to do. But he says, these guys don't want it bad enough. They had VP level jobs at their company and they left that, but they didn't want to burn the ships. I go, what do you mean? He goes, they kept the same standard of living. They didn't actually tighten their belts and say, there's no turning back. We're all in. And so they kept their country club membership and they kept their family vacation and they kept their nice cushy weekend kind of relaxing. But in terms of what it takes to actually get over the hump and start and run a successful company, they didn't want to go there. And so he's trying to, as the kind of the investor in this, get these guys to work like there's no tomorrow, which is what he had done. The picture is one of someone who's being transformed by the image of God. Because even though he came into money, it was something that had been seated in him all along about this life in Christ. And so now he's, they're one of the most godly couples that we know and have maintained this wonderful friendship. And what he wants to do is exercise his gift of giving. See, there is a cost of discipleship. But when we understand the treasure that is heaven, not just there and then, but here and now, we begin to understand it's worth giving everything up. My personal ambition, my, even my career goals, even my recognition, my titles, my positions, so that I can experience what God has for me here and now. That's that's the invitation. And I feel like what we've dumbed down church to be is this way where we just invite people into programs and we invite people and disciple actual consumers instead of having disciples who have a living faith. The point of the parable then is that the life you gain in the kingdom as a disciple of Jesus is far more valuable than the stuff we might give up to get it. So then let's just simply talk as I close in the value proposition of the kingdom. What does the treasure look like? Well, can I just talk about what I think the treasure looks like as I've seen it in moments in my own life, but maybe I've seen it in, in people who've walked longer with Jesus than I have. I would say when you choose to, to kind of follow Christ in this discipling capacity, life begins to find more meaning. What I mean by that is because you see your, your life as not, and the world is not an end in itself. Instead, you begin to live your life for the glory of God, not your own recognition. That is one of the most liberating things. So someone who follows and apprentices under Jesus gets to live with the freedom that it's not about me, but it's about someone else. I think your life starts to feel more grounded because you can see the difference between the world that God intends and the broken humanity that everyone else sees as normal. Listen, if I didn't have Christ and I saw what this world was, it would be all about me and let me get mine. Let me, let me just live in this moment. But what I understand is there's something way bigger, way better. I think when you choose to follow one of the treasures you experience is hope. And hope as like a verb, not a noun. Because despite how bad the world becomes, you understand how the story ends with the restoration of all things. You see the redemption. You can live with the tension, a peace that God cares and the struggle with things unresolved because God redeems all things. That was one of the things I feel like I had to come to grips with is that 
not everything has a nice, neat bow and God settles everything, but I can, I can at the same time experience discomfort and concern and yet comfort and peace at the same time. That's the kind of, of life that we can live. I think you can embrace life as an offering, not just a consumer. And as an image bearer, you're more able to love others from a full heart. In other words, gender, race, culture, aren't things to be afraid of, aren't things to keep at a distance, but you start to see those things as the fullness of God in his creation. And then you can find rest. I think poise begins to characterize you. You can love your life even though it might contain difficulties, struggle, or worse. See, it won't happen all at once, of course. We'll need to learn how to do it. But if we give ourselves as apprentices of Jesus, he'll teach us. And oh, by the way, he sends other people to show us. That's what it means to be equally yoked. That, that's what it means. You never took two oxen and put the same ones. If you're there, two two-year-old oxen, you'd never put them together. What you do is you take one who had about five to 10 more years next to a new oxen because the one older seasoned one would pace the other through the whole workday. That's how the, the picture of being equally yoked works. See, counting the cost of discipleship means that we, that we realize the prize becomes, is worth the price. And once we see the treasure, it's, either, it's easy to sell everything um, and follow after. So Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us in, in saying, heaven's Heaven's like a field where a guy finds a treasure and then he realizes how valuable it is, so he goes and sells everything and gets to enjoy it here and now. There's this invitation, there's this way that I'm trying to invite all of us to participate in. And, and I think there's this active living faith where it feels a little uncomfortable, feels awkward, it feels inconvenient, and yet it's having these kairos moments, these divine appointments where, where people's lives are being affected and touched. It looks like heaven on earth. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I'm reminded of your faithfulness in our lives, your abundance in our lives. And on this Memorial Day weekend, maybe the greatest memory we can have is you dying for our sins, you saving us by your grace, but you inviting us to come and follow. To, to pick up our cross like you did and follow after you. And so I pray that we would more and more die to our own self so that we can be alive in you. I pray that we would understand this value proposition and not hold on to these things as safety, as security, uh, because we're afraid, but we would be able to let go and, and grow in our ability to trust and respond. Thank you for the doors you're opening. I pray that you would continue to give us eyes to see. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.